house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. I was left in a basket on a certain doorstep. You know what's our ones? The real mother. Was in London. What'd she look like? The most beautiful girl in the town. Not many people can take the tale of Patrick Kitten Braden. Kitten. After seeing Kitten. You'll not bring my retreat into Hello and welcome to the This Head Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast exhumed by Alia Shawkat and her dog. Every week on This Head Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my doggy in the window, Joe Reed. Oh, have you noticed my waggity tail? Is that what's going on? Is it not waggly? Uh, we can we can debate as they did in the movie. I it's funny that the movie comes down on the side of waggity tail because I don't believe that that's how I grew more up whimsical words, so not surprising. Sure, I mean waggly is a pretty whimsical word as 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 it is. So you gotta you gotta go the extra mile to get more whimsical than waggly, and and they sure did it. You're my doggy in the window because I have often described you as waggity. Yes. God, that waggity <laughs> son of a gun. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That sounds like a euphemism for the F slur. It sure does. <laughs> 100% does. <laughs> you it's know, he you seems a little waggity. Someone, if, yeah. Yeah. Like their mannerisms, you can't quite tell yeah. if they're just an expressive person or if they are yeah. uh, somewhere on the queer spectrum. So it's like it's waggity. Yeah. You don't really know how to ascribe yeah. them, but you suspect. He could be a waggot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, happy Pride. <laughs> we're still... <laughs> it is still Pride. It is still Pride as, as we record this. As we are recording this. Yeah. Um, what is the month happy of Pride July? Be... Is July anything? Happy... Wrath. Sure, yes. Yes. Wrath. Um, Gay Wrath Month. Um, I get a also... little... I don't know. We don't need to go into it. It's a little performative to me. It's a little like, oh, I'm no more Mr. Nice Queer. Now I'm going to have Gay Wrath Month. Like, all right, we get it. Marshall I allow Johnson. it. If, even if it's performative, I I, I endorse it. Okay. So all right. It can be performative. I don't care. Throw your bricks. Um, whatever. Feel our wrath, um, especially as things are going in the United States. Um, anyway, uh, happy Pride, but also happy good movies are in theaters again. Yeah, man. We are, we're here to talk about Breakfast on Pluto, uh, starring Killian Murphy. It's the week that Oppenheimer opens. It feels like Killian Murphy. We'll get into it. It feels like Killian Murphy is finally getting the showcase that we've been promised for 20 years. Maybe we will see. Obviously, neither of us have seen Oppenheimer at this point, Not but yet. we will be seeing it. Yes, we will. Uh, as this airs this coming weekend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll have my, I already have my IMAX ticket in my hot little hand, and I already have my Barbie ticket. So, like, I am good to go for uh, opening day. Behind the eight ball, I'm 
waiting on my husband to tell me how he wants to see Oppenheimer, and then we will get those tickets, because it's like, do we want to see it in IMAX? Do we want to see it in 70mm? We have the opportunity we could see it in 35mm at another theater. Like, you know, I don't think I have the option for either 70mm or 35. Like, so so I definitely did go with IMAX in my... Take the train into Toronto. I bet they have the 70 film. It's... It sounds easier than it is. Um, It's also a three-hour movie, so that's a whole day. There's only Um, one train that really goes all the way to Toronto. This is is something that comes up when I'm uh, TIFF planning, is I wish there were a train that went from Buffalo that got you into Toronto early in the day. The one train that goes from Buffalo to Toronto gets you in there, like, after 7 o'clock, and that's if it's on time. So um, you've blown most of the day so whatever there you go whatever logistics logistics but yes um i'm happy to be seeing it in imax i will say i'm not usually an imax person but for certain things it feels good and correct and just give me the biggest fucking screen you possibly can for uh, (laughs) so that you can study the crevasses Mm -hmm. in killian murphy's face at a uh, hundred feet in the air. It really, every time I see that trailer, because you do get that close-up of Killian Murphy's face, and I'm like, 28 Days Later really was 20 years ago. And um, my haven't we all, you know, experienced a lot in 20 years. And I'm sure the movie is, you know, playing up, like you said, the the sort of the the crevasse-laden face and whatever, but, like, we are all 20 years Noted inventor of buccal fat removal, Killian Murphy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm excited for yeah. Oppenheimer. I'm excited for... He's mm-hmm. always been an actor, and we'll get into that in our discussion of Breakfast on Pluto, but, like, Killian Murphy, since I saw him in 28 Days Later, has always been kind of one of my guys, even though... Um, I'm not a completist as I was going through his uh, filmography. Obviously, so much of the last decade of his career has been Peaky Blinders, a show that I've never really watched. And when I say never really, I mean never watched at all. Um, <laughs> and there's even stuff like Wind That Shakes the Barley or Disco Pigs and stuff like that so that I still haven't seen also. Um, but Wind That Shakes the Barley, Wind That Shakes the Barley is fine. It's fine. As with every Ken Loach film, the title Loach. appears to be Loach. Loach. The title appears to promise something contemplative and um, uh, relaxed in its unfurling. And like, I know that like shakes is an active verb. There should be some sort of like shakes, but also like I think wind and barley are probably doing the heavy lifting in that title. And I'm imagining like. Fields You're imagining of... Terrence Malick, yeah. wind blowing through yeah. barley. Yeah, you get it. You and, get it. Yeah, it. That's not what that movie really is, though. No. Like, I, you know. Yes, but I still haven't seen it. Um, I like it better than the other Loach Palm winner, which, which is I called kind of hated. Um, I Daniel Blake. I Daniel Blake. Right. 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 Um, yeah, but yes. Yeah, so I'm excited for for uh, Oppenheimer to possibly be the Killian Murphy sort of mainstream widespread appreciation. Although it's interesting. We sort of assume, we assume a lot when we talk about like a Christopher Nolan movie in terms of its cultural reach and its box office and its uh, even awards potential. And we don't maybe remember 
that it's not always that. That, I mean, releasing Tenet during the pandemic did a lot for Christopher Nolan, both reputationally and historically. I think it turned a lot of people off of him that he was so insistent on putting Tenet in theaters uh, while the the world was shut down. And then Tenet itself was such an at times very sort of determinedly opaque movie in a lot of ways. And a lot of people were really alienated by that. Um, Tenet is a movie that I love very much. And I eventually I should did. revisit Tenet, but I remember thinking that it was really stupid, even when I was entertained by slashed by Robert Pattinson's scarves. I was happy to just sort of, I, when I eventually did see it in theaters, which wasn't until the next year, um, I really, and I liked it the first time too, but I was really sort of uh, taken with it and taken along the ride with it. But anyway, my point being that I don't know if there's a guarantee that A, Oppenheimer is going to be a blockbuster success, and B, that this means that, like, well, Killian Murphy's going to get an Oscar nomination. Like, uh, Christopher Nolan has only ever... He seems very stricken in this trailer, and you know he's playing a title character. I think the I think the possibility, the potential is high, higher than normal for a Nolan performance. Is is Heath Ledger the only Nolan performance that's, that's ever gotten an nominated? Oscar nomination? Yeah, I do believe. Yeah. So, and part of that is the genre that he works in. Part of that is that, like, something like Dunkirk is so completely ensemble-driven that, like, there really aren't spotlight performances, and even the ones that are are very small. So, um, you don't I really mean, get... like, And, like, the, the most, like, spotlight performance in Dunkirk is maybe Mark Rylance, who's almost completely removed right. from the action, the thrust of the movie. Right. If Memento um, comes much later in Nolan's career, I imagine that Guy Pierce is a much bigger contender for a nomination, just because it's such a actorly exercise on top or of Joe Pantoliano or Carrie Ann Moss. Um, I think I think the performances in Memento are are some of the best in his entire career, um, but Guy Pierce especially because it's like the. On top of being a great performance, it also feels like the challenge of it feels very hooky for a for an Oscar campaign, right? Like he had to mm-hmm. every scene he has to act like he's you know a clean slate and whatnot. Just dro- like he's just air dropped into the scene, right? Um, so it'll be interesting to see <laughs> what Oppenheimer does for Killian Murphy. Is all I'm going to say. The thing about Killian Murphy in Oppenheimer is the same thing as like Oppenheimer. I still feel like weirdly. At this point, as we're recording it, it's being sold as kind of just straightforward what it is. But because it's Christopher Nolan, you know that it's not. So, like, we don't know what this movie kind of is. Or, like, yeah. I think people might end up being disappointed or it's what it's it's if if he just goes and makes a straightforward movie because even like dunkirk we expect it to be a straightforward war movie right it's not it's not it's not going to be the other thing is it's universal right because or no yes because uh he divorced from the wb yeah from warner brothers um as villeneuve did right conscious uncoupling uh yes conscious uncoupling um did villeneuve also do the same right is dune also 
No, no, Dune's Warner Brothers. Dune is Warner Brothers, right? Um, so, because they uh, did. Warner put Brothers Dune in is theaters. probably going to piss yeah. off a uh, uh, fuck you, David Sasliff. Um, yeah, they're going to uh, end up alienating everybody before it's all said and done. But anyway, Universal seems to be trying to advance the notion of Oppenheimer as an explosions movie, which, like, I guess it's not hard to do when you're talking about the creation yeah, it's of the like, ex- atomic bomb. really big explosions in IMAX. Otherwise, it's like, why are we watching this straightforward drama? Every IMAX? update about that movie is like, you don't understand the actual movie theater you are in will explode by the end of this movie. <laughs> like, you will be thrown clear across your town, and it's going to be the greatest experience of your entire life. They're really, really selling the idea of explosions, because you're right, because they want to make it a must-see in a big theater event, even though it's, like, is the second well, and I saw... I feel like they're trying to get, like, dudes who see Fast and Furious movies, like dudes and dads who may not sit through, you know, an adult drama, but will go watch things go crash, boom, boom. I guarantee you the first 20 minutes of this movie, at least, are going to be A, in black and white. This is my shooting my shot prediction. They're going to be black and white, and they're going to be Oppenheimer after the fact, testifying before Congress or whatever. Like you cause you've seen scenes from that in the trailer, right? Where he The first twenty minutes is gonna be like some weird montage that we can't tell what's going on. I think it's gonna be frame story. I think we're gonna get a, a lot of frame story before we get into the actual uh and and a lot of it's just gonna be like then like science. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think there's gonna be an interstellar aspect to it. Now Interstellar still made pretty good money, right? If I'm not mistaken, I don't think Interstellar like bombed or anything like that. I think so. I think it made like one fifty, one eighty, right range, but it was still seen as a disappointment, right? But like, I like Interstellar. I like Interstellar a lot. It was on TV the other day, and I had to turn it off because it was distracting me from my work. Um, <laughs> and um, but anyway, I have high hopes. You, we've we've talked about this before about how I kind of resent the. Um, gender essentialism of Barbie versus Oppenheimer and the Oppenheimer's a boy movie and Barbie's a girl movie and if you're a good queer you'll you'll see Barbie with the girls and and don't see Oppenheimer because that's heteronormative bullshit or whatever. I think I've seen two people joking you about are this. I don't think lying. I've seen any person seriously saying that. I defy that. I see it all the time. All the goddamn time. And mm. it's well, I'm on I'm on Twitter less than you are, so maybe that's. What I also think we have time and time again proven that we have curated our Twitter <laughs> presences, to or be maybe than each you other. just take people seriously when they're joking, or maybe I'm. I just think like, the they're jokes joking. are dumb. I think the jokes are dumb, and I think the jokes come from a legitimate place of people being like, "We need to make sure that we support." Greta Gerwig's movie and don't support Christopher Nolan's movie because everything has to be a battle of this or that. And I think it's... I mean the simple fact of the matter is Barbie is going to blow Oppenheimer out of the water because like Good. Oppenheimer is a three hour movie. I'm still like, seeing them both on the same day, much... and I still want Oppenheimer to do well. And I think it's I think it's reductive, and I think it's silly, and I think it's the thing that drives me crazy about the way that people talk about movies on the internet, which is leading with stupidity <laughs> like leading with fucking dumbness <laughs> and it's uh you're saying this as like uh, people are apparently 
I have seen none of this, but apparently, according to The Hollywood Reporter, everyone is up in arms over the plot of No Hard Feelings. I have seen some of this. This movie that parents, the, the parents are trying to buy a sex worker for their child as if every action, everyone in a movie... Why am I why am I getting mad about this? Because no one is making this complaint. No I, one is making this complaint. From what I understand, I just, it's much more prevalent on TikTok, which I believe. A, I don't I don't okay. expose myself to TikTok because I, I love myself. Um but I also like it feels like a very Gen Z thing, right? Like that's sort of their 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 sex phobic uh you know take on popular culture is like as soon as i saw that trailer i was like oh gen z is not going to be able to handle this one um well i mean see the movie and it's like it's much not, tamer i mean it's that. a sex comedy but it's way less about anything sexual than i don't think it matters to these people though i don't think that kind of thing matters i think everything is um I don't know. I don't know. We could have a whole hour. That <laughs> bonus episode, Joe complains about Gen Z. It's going to be a whole time. No Hard Feelings, good movie. No Hard Feelings is a very saying. good movie. Like, exceeded uh, my expectations. Asteroid very City, movie. great movie. Asteroid so City, it's like, it, it, Yep. Listen, the movies are back. And uh, we're uh, leaving this episode into a weekend where you have lots of options of what to go see. And right now, we're recording at a great time when you have a lot of options to see. Uh, A lot of great options to see. I'm going to go see Past Lives after our recording. Yeah, I got to figure out where I can see Past Lives and then see Past Lives. Because I am rabid, rabid to see that one. Um, All right. All of which is to say we're talking about Breakfast on Pluto today. Uh, Starring Killian Murphy. Starring Killian Murphy. So that's our our connective tissue for this. This one's been on our list for quite a while. Had you ever seen it before now? I hadn't, which is partly why I was so... uh, Why it's been on my list for a while. And I remember at the time, I missed it. Because I think it was kind of blink and you miss it in my college uh, city I was in. Yeah, yeah, I definitely uh, saw it on on Netflix DVD. Yeah, um, but I do remember having like queer friends who had seen it and liked it at the time. Yeah, so it also has that sheen of problematic in twenty twenty three to it, where it's right. we our our vocabulary and our sensibility for trans characters and fluid you know gender fluid characters has definitely evolved since 2005 we also have i mean even back then i think there was a consideration of cisgender straight character straight actors playing queer and trans characters like that's not like it mm-hmm. was it's not like oh we we didn't know that that was controversial it still was controversial back then it was just like those voices were not heard as broadly who were who you know were speaking up about that and definitely people speak up about that a lot more i have fairly complex feelings about that particular notion the idea of um you know, straight actors playing queer roles, which I think straight actors playing queer roles to me, I don't know if you feel the same way, is a little bit of a different beast than cisgender actors playing trans characters. Oh, absolutely. But I also feel like the farther back you go, the more those lines are blurred and the texts that we're talking about. So 
it's somewhat blurred in this text too. Yeah, because we'll. I mean, obviously, we'll talk about kitten in the movie. Yeah, but uh, I don't know to what extent kitten as presented in this movie is interested in being so definitive exactly but i think it's safe to say that this is a trans character or at least a gender fluid character yes Um, i think that's safe to say yeah which complicates a viewing of this movie and which complicates my uh appreciation of the central performance of this movie while Mm -hmm. also trying hard to place it within a context place um you know, the novel that it's based on within a context. There's also, of course, historical context being that this takes place in the 1970s in, uh, in Ireland and also on the border of Northern Ireland and also at times in London. And so there's a lot going on politically, militarily, um, with the troubles at this moment in time. So, there's a lot I think of there's also a lot of complexity in the fact that this is a Neil Jordan movie mm-hmm. who uh there's a lot to say about the crying game. There's as a scene well, in this movie and... that very very specifically kind of forces the viewer to recall the crying the game cr- because yeah. Stephen Ray is also in this movie, Stephen Ray is in every Neil Jordan movie. Um, I thought a little bit about it's obviously a different case, but I thought a little bit about Jonathan Demi who kind of made uh, Philadelphia somewhat of an apology to mm-hmm. people that he upset uh, unintentionally with the Silence of the Lambs. Yes. And I was, I couldn't really, f- it was hard to find much on this movie. The Wayback Machine has uh, not been our friend as much as it used to be. All right. Um, and because I was curious. Yeah, there's if, a Wesley Morris review that is cited on the Rotten Tomatoes page that I could not find. Usually if it's if the the link from Rotten Tomatoes is dead, I'm usually able to Google my way to finding the article, mm-hmm. the review, and I was not able to in, the, in that case. And it's too bad because as a, a queer critic, I would have liked to have seen what his thoughts on that movie are. I would like to just read an interview from Neil Jordan that hopefully uh, addresses this in a way. Like, does this seem like... In some ways, this movie reads as apologia a little bit, but also stumbles in being that, you know, from at least uh, a lens of almost 20 years later. I have complicated opinions on that as well in that we we did a screen drafts a few years ago about queer oscar winning movies and Mm -hmm. it became kind of apparent during the course of doing that that i like the crying game more than you do and while also you know understanding the incredibly fraught uh, politics and gender politics and sexual politics of that movie Mm -hmm. and its reception whatever and there are ways in which I think Breakfast on Pluto is, as you're saying, an attempt to maybe right some of the wrongs, but I can't deny that I felt more emotionally enwrapped, and if that's a term, uh, in Dill's story and The Crying Game than I did in Breakfast on Pluto and and Kitten's story, even though Kitten is much more centered in this, I, I, I don't know. I was much more emotionally involved in the Crying Game, and, if, and maybe more emotionally satisfied by that movie. And 
I'm probably going to end up sticking up for the crying game again. And this podcast, just uh, uh, a warning in advance. From that screen drafts, I remember my logic being less the crying game is bad and being like there's better movies to put on this draft than the crying game. Sure. Because I don't know if I... I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. I don't know if I would say I I'm not saying that I feel that like movie. you... Sure. I definitely think I like it better than you, though. I think that's pretty safe to say. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. There's, there's going to be um, a lot to talk about for this movie that I am a little, you know... In the in the weeds. Of. Well, uh, maybe we should get into the plot description. We can start talking about the movie a little bit more sure. uh, with some specificity. Listeners, we are here to talk about Breakfast on Pluto, written and directed by Neil Jordan, based on the Pat McCabe novel. Movie stars Killian Murphy, Stephen Ray, Brendan Gleeson, Liam Neeson, Ruth Naga, and Dominic Cooper. Future couple alert. Um, and then a lot of other bit players. The movie is most, I would say, mostly just uh, kind of a character piece that hinges on the performance of Killian Murphy. Yeah. Um, the movie premiered at the Telluride Film Festival in 2005. It also played Toronto, and it played the New York Film Festival, then opened in limited release November 16th, 2000. Five. Joe, yes. Reed, yes. are you ready to give a 60-second plot description of Breakfast on Pluto? I am, with the caveat that there's a lot of plot in this movie. There's a lot happens in this movie. Also with the caveat that this is no longer considered a planet movie, it's considered a moon movie. <laughs> That's true. The it, world the really has sense. changed. The, the, the galaxy has completely changed. The galaxy is different than it used to be. Yeah, it's true. All right, Good if you are ready, I will start the clock. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, your 60-second plot description of Breakfast on Pluto starts now. All right, Patrick Patrick Kitten Braden is born in an Irish town bordering Northern Ireland in the times of the Troubles. His mother is said to resemble Mitzi Gaynor, and his father is the local Catholic priest, so his mom abandons him and leaves to get swallowed up by London forever, while Patrick is raised in foster care by people who are in no way prepared for the feminine, flamboyant adolescence that awaits them. In the turbulent 1970s, Patrick gets older and begins going by Kitten, embracing her female identity and riling up her schoolmasters while remaining close with the childhood friends uh, who are Irwin, who joins the IRA, Charlie, who eventually becomes seconds. Irwin's girlfriend, and Lawrence, who has Down syndrome. After school, Kitten begins to seek out places farther and farther from home. She ends up in something of a relationship with the glam rocker who keeps her in a trailer far away from the city, where he also happens to be stockpiling guns for the IRA. After Lawrence is killed by a car bomb, Kitten discards the weapons and is nearly murdered for it. Kitten is ultimately on a search for her mother and ends up in a series of situations which range from oddly, oddly romantic to terribly dangerous, including a stint as a magician's assistant and also being the victim of a nightclub bombing, only to be that's suspected as the bomber because she's both trans and Irish. While working at a peep show, Kitten encounters the priest from her hometown who finally admits to being her father, and then she then finds her mother in London who has a young son named Patrick, and Kitten doesn't reveal her true identity, instead returning home to help Charlie raise her baby after Ermin is killed by the IRA for tra- uh, ratting them out, and then the pair, along with Kitten's priest father, survive an arson attack by the small-minded town folk, and by the end of the movie, Kitten is living openly in her chosen family, glammed up like a movie star, and pushing a pram around town. 20 seconds over, which I think is somewhat of a feat because there is a lot of plot. A lot of plot. A lot of plot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, like, episodic nature of it is one of the things I had such a problem with because, like, while, like, all of these hangups we've described about Killian Murphy playing this character, I do think he is a compelling performer that 
you is very easy to watch. Even if I I say that next to, I'm not sure I think this is a good performance, but Killian Murphy is a compelling performer. I think I agree with that. I think I I think I probably come close to having that same opinion. Yeah. But like the episodicness of this really kind of made this a really lethargic movie. Mm-hmm. It's just it over drag. two hours yeah. and it felt longer. It, it felt Oppenheimer length. <laughs> it <laughs> yeah. it really drags out. It really becomes kind of shapeless mm-hmm. to the point where it's like all it's it's told in what, thirty six chapters yes. or something. And, and pointing all of that out really like relatively brief. It hangs a lantern on how long it feels when you're seeing like 32 33 you know what i mean like yeah and it has to be the type of thing that it's keeping a structure from the book in some that's uh-huh. my presumption because yeah. i obviously haven't read the book yeah. but it, it feels like something that works on the page but doesn't work in movies you know it yeah uh, there are three it makes there it makes a lot of stuff seem more superfluous than it probably is mm-hmm. because it's not it doesn't feel like there's a really strong arc here, and ultimately, I think the stuff with the Troubles is handled not as well as just the simple arc of Kitten yeah. trying to find her birth mother, and I don't know, it it it, it feels meandering. In it almost, a way that there I, were a few times, there were like a couple different times that I went and double checked that this isn't based on a true story because it, mm-hmm. the, especially the stuff with the troubles and the IRA feels boxed in by trying to be faithful to some sort of biographical detail because otherwise it just seems unnecessarily muddled and that like kitten is Irish, but not Northern Irish, but grew up very close to Northern Ireland. So there's a lot of whatever. And Mm -hmm. there's, you know, violence, but it's the IRA perpetuating the violence, but it's Kitten and her friends who are ends up the victims of the violence, but also the, the English and the loyalists are the ones who are the bad guys, but also the IRA is the one who are like threatening Kitten and killing Irwin and that kind of thing, which like, mm-hmm. like moral complexity is not a vice in this case. Like, but it does feel like it belongs in a movie that is maybe more specifically about the conflict rather than ultimately window dressing for kitten story because it just sort of distracts the viewer and makes you have to go through this sort of like moral gymnastics for ultimately a character who doesn't, who is not, you know, concerned with that as much. And I understand that like there are thematic constructs at play with that, but ultimately I feel like a cleaner, you know, and maybe less, you know, less complicated, less complex, series of window dressing around it might have helped the central story feel more central, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, again, not to... The the conversation of who is telling what type of stories, this did really feel to me like a queer director or a gender queer director, even something uh, along the lines of that, because by all telling Neil Jordan is a cisgendered man, yeah. might have been able to have more focus on drawing mm-hmm. the threads of Kitten's gender identity, her gender expression, mm-hmm. 
to this kind of political reality yes. that she experienced yes. of not necessarily falling on, you know, it's at least the way I think we've seen it depicted on screen is the troubles are along a binary of, right. you know, this side and that Green side. Green and, and orange, you know, Catholic and Protestant. Yeah. Loyalist and Republican. Right. And Kitten yeah. finds herself drawn into, or at least, you know, uh, experience of the whole kind of spectrum. And you see the opportunity for that to also be tied to her identity in a way that the movie never really threads because at the same time, all this is going on, you know, she refers to herself uh, by her given name. She refers to herself as kitten. Someone, uh, she tells someone I'm not a boy. She tells someone I'm not a girl. You know, it's, and like all of that, I think is interesting to watch, but it's never fully developed yeah. in the movie. Yeah, I think I wanted more time spent maybe with Kitten and her friends early on. I thought I thought those mm-hmm. scenes were very good, and they were a little fleeting. And we then, always want that movie. Well, but uh, but I think also it it makes the end of the movie feel more hard-earned when it's Kitten and Charlie sort of raising this baby together, which I still think, like, I'm a sucker for chosen family narratives. You know what I mean? So, like, I love that that's where the movie ends up. I felt a little corny about it, because it did feel like it only barely, if at all, dodges, you know, creating this type of heteronormative (laughs) unit for them at the end in a way that I was like, well, you know, because, like, at the end of the movie, uh, you know, Kitten is expressing herself in a traditionally feminine way. Sure. Or, um, you know, clearly, like, that's what her identity is at that point in the movie. So it's not entirely heteronormative, but it's them literally walking a baby in a pram at the end of the movie. And I was like, it. I see what you're saying, but I also think within that same context, it's two women walking a pram and there is no... No, there is never any hint of romance between the two, so it's still like two sure. friends raising a child. So I think there is enough of a, a queering of the family unit. I understand what you're saying, and that sometimes that like baby in a baby carriage can be a very sort of shorthandy kind of uh, you know semiotic way of of depicting something. And like I get yeah. it. I don't. I I don't entirely disagree. Um, but I also think that that that's helped by if Charlie's better developed earlier in the movie. Charlie really does like drop in and out of this movie. She shows up and saves my God. from the from the you know um, the manipulative magician, and she just sort of like shows up here and there. And I feel like and it's Ruth. We love Ruth. We want more of Ruth. This would have been this definitely was the first thing I had ever seen Ruth Negan, and to the point where I had not remembered that I had seen her in this. Um, and uh, I think that character being more of a consistent presence throughout the movie makes that ending of the movie feel more, more, more appropriate. Well, and I really wondered watching this movie. I was like, this movie used to exist as like a three-hour-plus movie sure. because it feels like there's a lot of bulk that got. Mm taken it feels like and that's what i also wondered about the kind of shapelessness of this movie Mm. was like was there 
not turmoil, but was there a struggle in like the edit room yeah. to figure out how to make this movie manageable? Because this is a movie that is trying to do yeah. quite a number of things and draw a lot of ties together of a lot of different things. And yeah. she felt to me like there was more of her at some point. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Her and her and Irwin for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, there are three movies that I sort of jotted down as comparison points to this movie as I was watching. Three movies that I was reminded of, one of which was The Crying Game, but also mm-hmm. uh, Velvet Goldmine, uh, with a lot of... Anytime there's a T-Rex needle drop, I'm always going to think of Velvet Goldmine. <laughs> and this movie has no less than 17. Yeah, and but also even just in the beginning, just that it has this very sort of like, you know, um, 1970s UK sort of... Uh, I know that... that uh, Velvet Goldmine begins even earlier than that. But there's definitely a vibe that I got at the beginning of this movie that is like, oh, I love Velvet Goldmine so much. Um, and then also uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, specifically mm-hmm. when Kitten is sort of put up in the trailer with the guns in it by her um, her glam rock <laughs> boyfriend felt very, um, you know, uh, the wig in the box trailer. Um, but uh, both of those movies, obviously Velvet Goldmine and Hedwig have music and musical numbers and sort of to help propel the narrative, to give it a little bit more of a structure, to give it more of a, you know, the, the skeletal, you know, the bones mm-hmm. to it. And I think that not that I'm saying that like breakfast on Pluto should have been a musical, although have they tried to make it into a musical or am I just thinking it? it's so many things have been tried to it be turned into It would somewhat track if they did, yeah. like if they tried to make a T-Rex jukebox musical out of yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I so I mean, the music is essentially nonstop in this movie. It is, it, it, but it's not it, in the same way as the uh, uh, Velvet Goldmine and certainly not. Hedwig, which is a legit musical. I mean, those are, uh, I mean, yeah, Hedwig's a legit musical, but those are also two movies that I think, you know, utilize the music more intelligently. This movie, it feels somewhat like Neil Jordan is relying on those song cues mm-hmm. to give the movie a little bit more panache and personality. Um, because, like, I wouldn't really consider this movie much of a visual experience, barring a few sequences, um, mm-hmm. like the peep show, uh, sequence which also felt very paris texas yeah um okay yeah breaking the, the, in. the song cues are pretty excessive in this movie apparently there is a breakfast on pluto musical that is in some stage of existence uh it was there's a lot of like was scheduled to premiere at the galway international arts festival in july 2020 so like there's covid delays and there's you know all sorts of stuff but i i knew i had i knew i had heard of that so like there does exist a breakfast on pluto uh musical uh written by bob kelly um that i'm not sure where it has played but yes so anyway um yeah which makes sense all right. Um, I want to dip into Neil Jordan for a second because I believe this is our first Neil Jordan film that we've talked about yeah. on this podcast. Um, a lot of them have been. He's an interesting filmmaker. He's had uh, several movies that have had Oscar success on some level or another, and then he's also made a lot of movies that like wouldn't qualify for this for this podcast from the other end because they just were never. 
um, realistically in the Oscar conversation, things like Byzantium, which I love, and Greta. I knew you were going to bring up Byzantium. Wouldn't have guessed you would have brought it up first. Um, well, no, I'm just sort of... You do love that movie. I'm just sort of thinking about, like, the, you know, movies like, even, like, In Dreams, you know what I mean? Where it's like, these movies were never intended. Huge critical bomb. Right. Um, but so early Neil Jordan sort of pre because the crying game is his big sort of American crossover success. But before that, mm-hmm. have you ever seen his debut directorial features, a movie called Angel, which stars Stephen Ray and begins his sort of long uh, professional relationship with Stephen Ray. It's executive produced by John Borman. Have you ever seen the company of wolves, which is his second movie, which is a Gothic fantasy horror movie starring Angela Lansbury. They say the Prince of Darkness is a gentleman. Gentlemen always keep their promises. What have you done with my granddaughter? Nothing she didn't want. (laughs) I have not. It's like, I haven't either. And I, and researching for this episode, I immediately added it to my Netflix DVD queue because I (laughs) deeply need to see that. It's essentially like it's Little Red Riding Hood crossed with like almost a labyrinth slash princess bride kind of like story structure but like dark like dark gothic what is it about a teenage girl that wants to fuck a werewolf or something well it's a teenage girl whose grandmother is angela lansbury and angela lansbury is like reading her these like fairy tale stories and while that's all happening the girl is escaping i think into this like dream world where like werewolves are real and it's uh and and I am highly into the sounds. Of this. I'm saying, I'm saying. So uh, uh, update forthcoming on the Company of Wolves when I end up seeing it. Um, that's immediately preceding Mona Lisa, which is which you have to see. That I do have to see Mona Lisa. Bob Hoskins is Oscar nominated for this. Uh, it gets some BAFTA nominations. It is Neil Jordan's first. A crossover with Oscar, and I believe that in 1986, this is the year that Paul Newman finally, at long last, wins his Academy Award for The Color of Money, but I believe Bob Hoskins was the critical mm-hmm. fave slash sort of like nominal second place, in that I imagine he was never really seen as a realistic, a realistic threat to win once the Paul Newman narrative set in, but mm-hmm. he's sort of the LA confidential to Paul Newman's Titanic, I would imagine. Um, in that way, he directs uh, a movie called High Spirits in 1988, and then We're No Angels, <laughs> former Comedy Central staple that I have definitely seen many oh, is times that true? as a child and never as an adult. <laughs> Wait, talk to me about High Spirits then. What do you remember? Oh, Steve Gutenberg and Daryl Hannah. My goodness. Yeah, Daryl Hannah's a ghost. I think he's trying to cool world her into being a real person <laughs> again. They he def- they definitely have sex. Oh wow. Peter O'Toole um, is also in this movie. My gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably not a good movie. <laughs> I'm intrigued by this as well. Uh, the one I was going to mention is 1989's We're No Angels, which is not a movie that I've seen, but I remember weirdly like that's a video store cassette box that I a remember. Movie that only exists to me as a VHS cover. But it's Robert De Niro, Sean Penn, and Demi Moore. And De Niro and Sean Penn play, I imagine it's... Uh, oh, it's Depression era, and they're convicts who are masquerading as priests. I think is the is the bro deal? sister act. Yeah, essentially right. But yeah, the the video cover is Robert De Niro and Sean Penn in identical haircuts, identical sort of like quasi mushroom cuts. Um, both dressed up as priests, sort of with the the hands uh, hands 
folded and I've seen this porn before. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's uh, and it's oh, it's written by David Mamet, which I did not realize. Uh, based on not only are they boyfriend twins, they're priest twins. Oh, the, and it's of course based on a Michael Curtiz movie that had originally starred Humphrey Bogart and Aldo Ray and Peter Ustinov. So there's a lot of of uh, lineage there. But Where No Angels definitely was a video store cover of of my youth, and and I never saw it. Uh, directs a movie called The Miracle in 1991, starring Beverly D'Angelo. Uh, and then The Crying Game happens, and The Crying Game is a huge sensation in america this was a for good and for bad harvey weinstein miramax success story and that like they sold the sizzle on that steak incredibly successfully right where um Mm -hmm. it's he gets a best director nomination the movie gets a best picture nomination neil jordan wins original screenplay for the crying game also nominated stephen ray and jay davidson uh for their acting but this was a rather infamous advertising campaign that was very much settled on don't tell the secret in this movie don't you know see this movie before somebody tells you the great big secret in this movie and of course the great big secret in the movie is that dill the sort of nightclub shantus who stephen ray's character who is an ira guy on the run from a an operation gone quite bad um falls for and ultimately the the surprise and the you know and we can you know talk about the way that the movie sort of plays that surprise is that dill is a and again talk about like the way that like we didn't delineate these things maybe as carefully back in 1992 uh, uh dill has a male anatomy and that is the that is the shocking surprise of the crying game now of course in my in my view of the movie that is certainly not the be all and end all of the movie and i think i think i really have come to really appreciate the way that that movie tells that story beyond the shock of it all i think it is that mm-hmm. that relationship is taken very seriously i think dill is taken very seriously as a character beyond even just the relationship you see stuff with like jim broadbent is the bartender at the at the bar and like has this very sort of friendly relationship with her and she has this um very sort of she's she's you know your beguiling sort of you know figure of mystery while also being a person in a context as, you know, she's the one, she's not the outsider in this town. He is, you know what I mean? Like Fergus mm-hmm. is definitely the, the, you know, the new guy to town and their love story is ultimately taken very seriously. And by the end sort of, you know, they leave on this note of, you know, that this movie invests in their love story. And I think the fact that the marketing campaign which was successful, I will say. Like, the marketing campaign did the job of making that movie an indie hit in the States and ultimately a multi-Oscar. Right. So, like, that is the sort of, you know, the wicked... Neil Jordan wins the screenplay Oscar, the right. original screenplay right. Oscar. And more people saw the movie for that ad- advertising campaign, which ultimately is, I think, a good thing. But it's also a bad thing in that, like, it really does other 
the Dill character and Dill's transness or dragness or however we want to, you know, characterize that character who doesn't, you know, claim one way or another in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get to then then that results in things like the 1992 Academy Awards, which I have watched within the last several years, which is Billy Crystal makes so many really ugly jokes about the crying game at mm-hmm. the crying game's expense, which like Billy Crystal in 1992, like any sort of like straight cisgender middle of the road, you know, comic, like you can probably write that, write those jer- jokes yourself. Right. But it's, it's uncomfortable to watch in the context of today. And they keep cutting to like Jay Davidson is in the audience who like could not look more ill at ease with what's going on. And you just feel absolutely awful watching it. And so, and that yeah. is a direct result of the way that the movie the was, was marketed and the movie was sold. So there's like, there's a mm-hmm. lot of conflict to go with the crying game while also the fact that I think as a movie divorced of everything is a very good movie. So that's where I come down on the crying game. What about you? My favorite Neil Jordan movie is the next one because I'm. Did you not okay. want to talk about the Crying Game? But I want to give you your space because I know no, 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 no. You have episodes. to talk about the Crying Game to talk about this. I just feel like I don't have much interesting to say okay. on yeah. it as you do, yeah. um, because I haven't seen it. I've not seen it since you have seen okay. it. Okay, um, gotcha. But I, uh, I, I, I well, talk about the next one because the next one is also very interesting in terms of <laughs> uh, very, very gay. Yeah. And uh, you want to talk about the gray area of uh-huh. straight performers playing probably pretty fucking gay characters. Yeah, uh, it's Interview with a Vampire. Yeah, which it, <laughs> which has since become a TV show that is definitely much more overtly gay. Have you watched the TV um, show at all? I haven't, but the people who love it love that show. I will say, even if you um, don't want to commit yourself to watching an entire season of drama television, which is a time time commitment, no matter how way you slice it, just watch this, the first movie. Just watch the series premiere, which gives you everything, honey. Like it, it's it it's so <laughs> it 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 crosses those lines that the movie wouldn't and it like it's so sexy and it's so you're saying this like i'm not someone who has watched multiple bootlegs of the lestat musical <laughs> pre and on broadway uh wild the changes that happened etc um what a piece of shit um interview with the vampire uh, is so uh, notable though for not only for the story itself and the the queerness of the Lestat and Louis relationship, but the fact that it stars the two biggest male movie stars, or not like the two biggest, but like certainly Tom Cruise was the biggest, and like Brad Pitt could not have On been, the yeah. like he was the like male sex symbol of the moment. They were kind of the two, almost like a torch passing, like Tom Cruise, the sex symbol of the 80s, and then Brad Pitt, the sex symbol of the 90s. Um, and it's almost more interesting of a movie for what they won't do than what they will. Like they really do walk you up to the doorstep of everything, but those two metaphors for gay sex. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And like, and it's, and it's anybody with a even halfway open mind that's attuned to that kind of thing is like going to read it as the most bold text but like they it's not just gay sex but like gay culture because of course interview with a vampire has a little diva who slays like (laughs) it's 
I mean, little diva fangs come out. Kirsten Dunst in. <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, I mean, she rules. She's the original. Uh, she's Megan before she was One, like to the point where I have a lot less patience for the people who went crazy for Megan because I was like, yeah, I've seen Claudia and in interview the vampire. I know it. I know it, how it can be done. Um, but you're right. It's 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 the subculture of vampires in that like. To the point where, like, oh, they're really doing it crazy in Berlin. You know what I mean? Like that kind of a thing. It's like it's you know we you, you, we haven't met oh one hundred percent vampires from across like, the oh, ocean yet. Like you think you've had hot gay sex? Here comes Antonio Banderas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is the weird shit we get into over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's great. Um. Um. Uh, okay. So all of this to say, yes. interview with a vampire is like splashy trash, but it still gets multiple Oscar. It's also like it probably should have gotten more hugely like, mainstream. It's like great movie. One of the most talked about movies of that year. Like as as somebody who got so much of their culture from MTV at that point in history, like Interview with a Vampire was all over MTV. It was like. It's so funny to imagine that, like, the youth, the teens of the 1990s were being sold Anne Rice homoerotic, like, you know, uh, uh, adaptation. And it's, but, like, that's why I, I'm whatever. I'm, I'm, I stand by it as saying it's Neil Jordan's best movie. I think that movie is, I enough. think you, I think you have a solid case, uh, to, to make that claim. I, as, as a Gen X cusper, I am wont to talk about the 1990s in sort of gilded tones, but like this is the kind of shit I'm talking about. Like this was we we existed in the margins of what we could get away with in the 1990s and like we ended up getting away with more than you think actually. <laughs> uh he follows up interview with a vampire with a movie that has every ingredient to being a this had Oscar buzz movie except it got one oscar nomination so we can't talk about two it. or two, two sorry cinematography and yeah. score um but it's it's michael collins which is back to ireland and back to uh the irish uh, british conflict this one takes place around <laughs> back to julia roberts trying to do an uh, accent yeah this place takes place around uh the time after the easter rebellion in uh the early the 19 19- teens 1920s uh, era uh liam neeson plays the title character there was a ton of oscar buzz around it it wins the golden lion at venice that year which kind of sounds insane uh, uh the jury was presented by uh, uh roman polanski uh but also if you look at the 1996 venice film festival it doesn't beat out a ton of like uh lingering classics i don't know if you want to you know take a look at that and uh see but i i remember perusing it there are some like because i did not look there are Um, there are some major filmmakers but like just going by the films themselves it's not like oh i can't believe michael collins beat this even though i'm sure there were like better movies uh in there but anyway michael collins ends up being a pretty big bomb when it comes to the oscars relative to its expectations it is wrapped up in the Julia Roberts' mid-90s backlash. This was around the time of Mary Riley and I Love Trouble, and uh, this was considered another flop from her. It definitely had best picture and best actor aspirations that did not get realized, so uh, this was a down one for Neil Jordan. 1997 
is very uh, his his next film in 1997 is very pertinent to this movie because it's another movie uh, based on a book by Pat McCabe, which is uh, the Butcher Boy. Have you ever seen the Butcher Boy? I haven't. I haven't either. It's uh, just from the sounds of it, it sounds unsettling. Even though I am to understand that the tone of it is a little um, dark comedy uh, inflected at points. It's um, about a young kid, young boy in 1960s Ireland, and who around so essentially same time period as uh ish as breakfast on pluto this kid is sort of um bullied in school and this bully's mother is also like uh, awful to him and his family and his mother commits suicide and all these sort of things and the kid gets sent to uh reform school and gets molested by a priest and comes back and his old best friend is now uh best friends with uh, the bully who tormented him. And there's this like horrible act of violence at the end of this movie. Yeah, you go. And that was the previous, you know, collaboration between uh, Neil Jordan and Pat McCabe. And I imagine there's like a lot of metaphorical and thematic uh, claims being made about the situation in Ireland and Northern Ireland and England at the time. And I remember that getting a decent amount of, I think that movie ended up on like a lot of like top 10 lists that year, even though it wasn't ever really in awards conversation. But I, I feel like that was like one of a lot of critics sort of like mm-hmm. outsider choice for a top 10 film. Uh, follows that up with In Dreams in 1998, or oh, it's two movies in 99. Which I think actually. was shelved for a while. Yeah, um, that's Annette Benning and Robert Downey Jr. He's a she's a psychiatrist, and he's her troubled patient, right? And she can like go into his dreams. There's some weird shit going on. Yeah. If I remember correctly, I definitely saw it, an, but like it was an 20 years F ago. reviewed film from ew if i remember mm. that correctly but let me hold on i have to look that look up. that up I'll, I'll i'll go on uh that same year he directs the end of the affair which is one of those movies there's a few of these actually where you go back and like that was a neil jordan movie huh um because it's much more known for its lead performance by julianne moore who gets a oscar nomination for that her second oscar nomination ray fines is in this movie um, and then he sort of embarks on this stage of his career where he directs pretty consistently and continues to do so. And some of his movies get more attention than others. And there's kind of no correlation between how much attention his movie gets and whether they're good. There are good movies that get no attention. There are bad movies that get a lot of attention. It's sort of all over the spectrum. So he directs. Uh, the Good Thief, uh, starring Nick Nolte in 2002, although I don't think that's maybe released in 2003. Um, Breakfast on Pluto, 2007, is The Brave One with Jodie Foster. She gets a Golden Globe nomination. A uh, good deal of Oscar buzz, but that doesn't really pan out. 2009 is Undine, which is the mermaid movie with Colin Farrell that I believe critics liked 
pretty well. 2012 is Byzantium, the vampire movie starring Saoirse Ronan and Gemma Arterton and Caleb Landry Jones that is loved by me and anybody else who saw it, but nobody really saw it. So, um, but I, rem- I I feel like anybody, who, I, I don't think I've ever seen people like shit on it who have seen it. It's either the people who saw it and liked it or the people who just didn't see it or never heard of it at all. Uh, <laughs> seek it out. It's really good. Um, 2018 is Greta, which you've seen and I've seen. And fun fucking time. Isabel Huppert. Not great. Is not great. Let's be real. It's not great. But Isabel Isabel Huppert is having the time of her life with the millennials. It's it's a movie about how she lures in women with handbags and uh, hides them in trunks in her home. It's the movie uh, that made me realize that Isabelle Huppert would have made a phenomenal exploitation star. Like, <laughs> genuinely would have ruled. The not not exploitation. No, it's not. Like, it is. It, it's, it definitely is. Um, she shoots a man in the head and then does like a ballerina twirl. Yeah. It's, 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 it's exactly what you think it is, but it's fun. And then 2022, Neil Jordan directs a neo-noir film with a screenplay by William Monaghan uh, starring Liam Neeson and Jessica Lange and Diane Kruger. And it all seems seemed to have good ingredients. And it was called Marlowe and everybody seemed to hate it. <laughs> so it's supposed to be dog. Shit. I haven't seen it, but like <laughs> everybody seemed to hate it, which is too bad. Um, along the way, he did a bunch of, uh, or at least a couple of television shows, most notably the Borgias, which ran for three seasons. It was one of those like, oh, that's still on on Showtime. Sometimes mm-hmm. things just exist on Showtime. And you're like, that was that movie kind of existed in the wake of the Tudors. And I imagine some people right. just don't differentiate between the two. That like, oh, like that show, that's the Tudors, right? And it's no, you're thinking of it, the Borgias. It's just these reverberations across multiple, uh, you know pay cable network but also like even that was precipitated by rome (laughs) right right which was hbo which was a whole other thing but the borgias particularly i remember neil jordan was rumored to be in the works of making a movie about the borgias forever for years and years and years dating back to like the early aughts and like i remember at one point christina ricci was uh was connected to it and at some point i think johnny depp was connected to it and it was i just through the years it went through like all sorts of different iterations and uh was never able i think uh, uh, scarlett johansson was attached at one point and it just never came together as a feature film and ultimately existed as a tv show so uh yeah, Neil Jordan's an interesting an interesting cat as a filmmaker, I feel like. With And looping back, Owen Gleiberman gave In Dreams a C minus, which probably means because it's him, it is an A plus. <laughs> Go check it out. I do remember seeing it and being like, huh. Um it's I remember it getting a really, really bad you know, something in Entertainment Weekly. Maybe Lisa put it on mm. her like worst, worst of, of the year, year list or, or something. something. That's very possible. Um, yeah, I remember the 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 reviews were definitely mixed there. That was during Annette Benning's um, uh, 
short hair, severe uh, personality era where she also did The Siege. Do you remember The Siege? Which is a movie. <laughs> I think that's a solid B minus of a movie, but like I've seen most of that movie on cable a lot. Like that's a movie where like if I come upon it, I'm just like, yeah, I'll watch The Siege for a while. Sure. Um, good, solid little. Let's movie. talk about uh, uh, Killian Murphy. Let's do. Because Killian Murphy is also a very interesting Super. run of movies. This is also the same year as Batman begins with like the most uh, superfluous Batman villain ever on screen, maybe. He's so good in the role, though. Like, I gotta say. Yeah. Like, yeah. Jonathan Crane. He's, he's so good in the role and like got that because he was so good in his Batman audition. Yeah. That they were like, well, we'll just put you in here because you're good. And then he's, you know, like the staple. He's the one who, who shows up in all three of the since. movies. He's very, very briefly in The Dark Knight. But then, like, has one of my favorite parts of The Dark Knight Rises is when Jonathan Crane returns in this sort of, you know, occupied city on top of this, like, pile of bureaucracy desks and whatever that is, like, and and <laughs> handing down judgment on the, the law enforcement officials of Gotham. Uh, Maybe the one good thing about Dark Knight Rises that isn't Anne Hathaway. I like a lot of things about Dark Knight Rises, but that is definitely my that favorite thing. I definitely, the more times, I've seen that movie maybe, like, three times now, and I've liked it better every time. Um... But anyway, he also in 2005 has Red Eye, the Wes Craven movie Red Eye, where he is mm-hmm. terrifying as the villain. That is a, I, I, every time I try and say that movie's running time, I get it shorter and shorter. Like at some point, I'm just going to start saying that Red Eye is 67 minutes long, even though it is, it's a, it's a, it's a tight, <laughs> it's, it's a tight 85. And like it, yeah. it does the job. It really, um, uh, the, uh, oh, it's so, taut and suspenseful and Rachel McAdams rules and Killian Murphy rules and um, uh, best thriller that also stars Colby Donaldson from Survivor in a small role. Like it genuinely, um, <laughs> it gets it done. Uh, so we are somewhat getting ahead of ourselves, even though 2005, oh yeah, no, let's go to the-, the same year as Breakfast of Pluto is like this huge year for Killian Murphy, but it all starts. He'd had, you know, roles in smaller movies that we haven't heard of, but it all starts with, uh, 28 days later, which comes out in the UK in 2002 is big in the States in 03. Yeah. Um, One thing I want to mention, though, in 2001, he's in a film adaptation of the uh, Enda Walsh play Disco Pigs, which actually was Murphy's very first professional acting gig was the stage production of Disco Pigs, which is really interesting um, that he sort of was able to take a lead role like that right out of the gate. Um, mm-hmm. Really sort of shows the kind of uh, potential he was in. But yeah, that's the first time anybody really saw him in anything any kind of in any kind of wide respect was 28 days later which is not really an actor's movie even though all of the actors in it are very good you know what i mean like um but it's a movie that is that's a director's movie you know what i mean that is a cinematographer's movie we talked about it when we did 100 snubs uh anthony don mantle's digital cinematography in it is stunning john murphy's score is tremendous um but out of that movie comes movie star Killian Murphy, or at least like, you know, uh, suddenly castable in everything, Killian Murphy. <laughs> Naomi Harris breaks through in that movie. 
Brendan Gleeson even like that's a, he's an actor who had you know been around the block and a bunch of things, but like he has a breakout uh, potential from that movie. Christopher Eccleston, uh, who had already Brendan been... Gleeson, who in Breakfast on Pluto shows up in the ideal way you want Brendan Gleeson to show up inside a giant animal suit yes. as a children's entertainer. Yes. I think that casting is maybe not ideal for Breakfast on Pluto in that it contributes to that pacing problem that you were talking about yeah. where it's like yeah. if that mo- that role isn't cast in Brendan as Brendan Gleeson you maybe don't think that it should be more uh prominent than it is but if you are going to cast Brendan Gleeson like do something with that character and ultimately yeah cuz it makes it feel like this is it, it it makes it feel like it's a stop and start yeah. type of thing i'm never going to not yeah. be happy to see Brendan Gleeson cuz he's fantastic and um but what a nice man. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, but yeah, Killian Murphy starts popping up in a ton of things. Girl with a Pearl Earring and Cold Mountain and the three movies we mentioned in 2005, which is Breakfast on Pluto, Batman Begins and Red Eye. And then 06, he's the lead in the aforementioned Ken Loach Palm Door winner, The Wind That Shakes the Barley. So um, he's kind of in that realm, right? He's the lead in... Irish and English movies, mostly Irish. Um, and then he's a either a featured villain or a supporting character in American movies or like big time indies like Cold Mountain. And he's a favorite of Danny Boyle. He's the Sunshine is a pretty pure ensemble, but I think of among equals, Killian Murphy's Kappa is probably the most lead in that movie he's the one who i really gotta watch sunshine oh chris it's so good um i know i know you love that movie i adore that movie it's tremendous and all its messiness i really love it um and then interestingly enough where you might have expected the batman begins jonathan crane role to really kind of launch him into american features it doesn't really happen. He's just sort of like he's Nolan's guy for a while, right? He's he's um the the billionaire scion in Inception and he is uh comes back as Jonathan Crane in in The Dark Knight Rises. He's in Dunkirk in a small but pivotal role. Then obviously uh, Oppenheimer's the big thing, but like other than that his appearances in major motion pictures or even like featured indies kind of dries up, right? He's in In Time, but not in a lead role. He's in um, Transcendence, which is the uh, Wally Pfister movie, which is sort of like being in a Christopher Nolan movie, but not Christopher Nolan uh, movie. <laughs> uh, but that's, again, not the lead role in that. He's one of the people in the uh, the Herman Melville biopic uh, in the Heart of the Sea. He's in uh, the Ben Wheatley movie Free Fire that everybody seemed to hate but me. Um, he's just in a lot of sort of smaller movies, maybe movies that were a little bit bigger, uh, a little bit bigger of a deal in the UK. And then 2020, he sort of pops back up in A Quiet Place Part 2 as 
the sort of featured non like the featured new character right he's the most prominent Mm -hmm. of the new characters in a quiet place part two and it's like i at least thought i who you know liked a quiet place part two better than other people did i was like oh it's so nice to see killian murphy back in a big movie again even though he had like dunkirk was certainly a big movie but he's like you know and peaky blinders has its fans well but that's that's the thing so like starting in 2013 is Peaky Blinders. But like even by 2013, the dark or the the uh, uh Batman Begins was 8 years before that. So it was still kind of a a little bit <coughs> excuse me. a little bit of a uh, fallow period. But yeah, Peaky Blinders then happens in 2013 and is one of those Netflix shows that's like you kind of wouldn't believe it. But like a lot of people are watching Peaky Blinders. There are there are two types of Netflix hits. Mm-hmm. There's the ones they're bullshitting you about, and then there are the ones that are like, you would be surprised how big of a hit this is. And Peaky Blinders is one of the latter ones. Ozark mm-hmm. was one of those ones, too, where it's like, are people watching Ozark? And then three years later, you're like, oh, a lot of people are watching Ozark. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, everyone watches Ozark. Like people in the office, it, they're like, "Love Ozark," blah 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 blah. And then you're like, "Succession," and they're like, "What?" Yeah, that? yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, Peaky Blinders is one of those like low key, uh, really popular shows, and it goes forever. It gets eight seasons, no, six seasons, but it runs over the course of like eight years, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those. It's a classically. Uh, UK show in that like six seasons, 36 total episodes. You know what I mean? Um, so it's like, but it, it probably as TV shows should be. Um, also the cast list of it, if you look and see, like, because again, Peaky Blinders is not a show that I watch. I love Killian Murphy, but I, um, organized crime shows like this. I think I recapped a lot of Boardwalk Empire and that burned me out on shows like this where it's just sort of like hard scrabble uh you know bootleggers or i don't know exactly what the central criminal empire is in peaky blinders but like i don't know it's excuse me um i i don't know but anyway the cast in this where it's like killian murphy's in it sam neill's in it helen mccrory uh the late helen mccrory is in this movie or in this show tom hardy shows up at some point and uh our friend uh wait no finn cole isn't the one in uh in that's joe cole, joe cole. Is the one in secret are they brothers eyes. though no idea okay <laughs> let me see Wikipedia is really, yes, they are brothers. Look at that, Joe Cole and Finn Cole. Patty Considine's in it, and Adrian Brody shows up in it, and Aiden Gillen, and Anya Taylor Joy, and Kingsley Benadire, and Sam Claflin, and uh, Katie Dickey from Game of Thrones, and James Frenchville from Animal Kingdom, and Stephen Graham from the aforementioned uh, uh, Border Empire, among other things. Daryl McCormick, our uh, hottie from uh, Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, was in it. So it's it's a show that employed a lot of 
actors who I really love. You know what I mean? And I and right. I appreciate it for it. I didn't have to watch six seasons of Peaky Blinders to be happy that it existed. So that's a show there. that my husband watches, and like as I'm coming in and out of the room, it's like I get it, <laughs> I get it. Yeah. Um, though I would like stop and uh, watch a few scenes uh, uh, when uh, Helen McCrory would show up. Well, of course, Helen McCrory yeah. though was in. If you want a show that you could watch Helen McCrory in, just go watch Penny Dreadful. For speaking of shows that aired on Showtime, I know again Showtime. It's like I have all of these shows. What a great spots. show! Find a way. Uh, I knowing the way that the streaming uh, universe exists right now, it's a better than even chance that it's been pulled. Which I should go and check and make sure that that's available somewhere because I'm going to raise holy hell if it's not um, Penny Dreadful. Is Showtime, one of the ones that's pulling <clears throat> things. I think I eventually think... they're all going to start pulling things. Show, uh, Paramount Plus, at least, with the news that HBO is going to license things out. Fucking David, Z- David Zaslav, you dirty ass piece of shit. Um, the the fact that HBO will now be licensing out their stuff and it's like. They're no longer HBO then. Well, I mean, like, it's just not. Here's the thing. You know, it, that's part of exclusivity is part of what gave HBO its identity. Here's, here's and, the other thing. Like, I realize if you're asking people to sign up for a streaming platform in 2023 and you're you're. HBO, as you say, which like predicates itself on the exclusivity. The only reason you're going to sign up for HBO Max, Max uh, now, is because there are, it's the only way you're going to be able to watch certain shows. And yet mm-hmm. Netflix is the one they already are paying for. I know there's all this talk about people like dropping their Netflix subscriptions, but I think in general, you need to give reason for people who are already signed up for Netflix to also pay for Max. And if they can watch your HBO shows on Netflix, now all of a sudden they don't have to pay for your streaming platform. So, like, congratulations, David Zaslav, you played yourself. And It's not like they're, you know... I mean, and I'm sure it's all going to come in different tiers, and I realize that, like, these, you know, the streamers have to figure out how to make money, etc. Mm-hmm. Um... But, like, they're not, you know, licensing out the mind of the married man. Right. Right. They're li- they're licensing out Insecure, which is, like, a top-tier HBO mm-hmm. show. Like, yeah. what are you doing? What, indeed, are you doing? Yeah, it's stupid. It's very stupid. Um, pulling things back, though, to Breakfast on Pluto for a second, because I want to talk about... Yes. Um, Let's get back. It did show up throughout awards season sporadically right killian murphy mm-hmm. is nominated for the golden Gets globe, the globe nom. uh in comedy which yeah. i would i would i would i mean like this is a whimsical lighthearted right. movie for a lot of right. it but uh i would m- more so be on board if you were like breakfast on pluto is a musical because there is well, non-stop music here's music, what i will tell you if no one's singing. if you're imagining a golden globe voter who is voting based on the cocktail party they just attended and not based on the movie they just watched i imagine that they'll be like oh breakfast on pluto that's a musical right okay so we'll nominate it in yeah musical. the poster is all neon colors. yeah yeah um, um that seems very much like Sony Classics maneuvering sure. tactics to me. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, 
also the the fellow nominees like Joaquin Phoenix wins you know they're calling Walk the Line a musical which yeah would feel less fraught to me if there weren't you know constant back and forth with movies like Ray I was gonna say this comes exactly the next year after Ray which also gets a bullshitty musical or comedy distinction so like I don't know we've had that argument before and I think I think I'm right but I just feel like the back and forth with category placement for those type of movies is what makes it complicated, confusing. Um, Also nominated Jeff Daniels for The Squid and the Whale, Johnny Depp for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Nathan Lane for The Producers, and Pierce Brosnan for The Matador. Is that one of those years that Johnny Depp gets nominated twice? Was he in a drama that year? No, uh, Finding Neverland was the year before. Um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, man. That was, I think, the movie where it all started to turn for both Johnny Depp and Tim Burton. Like, as we learned over I, the last... I am a defender of this Charlie and the Chocolate All right. I, I, I'm curious to hear it. I mean, uh, I grew up more... I'm someone who grew up more so with the book than I did the movie. Okay. And I do think, while it's ugly to look at. And I don't necessarily think that that's not intentional. Sure. Garish. I do think it's truer to the spirit of the book in a way. So like, and like the Oompa Loompa songs being direct, basically directly lifted from the book as well felt truer to my experience of what the Willy Wonka. And I, as somebody who never read the book and only ever saw the movie, like it makes sense that the two of us come down differently on that. But I do feel like popularly, like within popular culture, that that was a turning point for, because Johnny Depp had really the Pirates of the Caribbean breakthrough was only a couple years before this. But like, this is when at least people started to raise eyebrows and being like, are we just letting Johnny Depp do whatever he wants now? Like, what's going on? Because the whole performance is like a Michael Jackson riff, uh-huh. which which didn't is a choice. Is a, choice, is a real choice. Um, and I think with Tim Burton the same way, where it's just like we have we're we're very comfortable with sort of giving Tim Burton carte blanche to do whatever, but sometimes maybe maybe rein it in, Tim, a little bit. Is I think what the sort of the pop culture take on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory I am, was. I am, I am so uh, not... I, I, I just... Beetlejuice 2 is one of the most fucking depressing yeah, things. I mean, yeah. like, I want to believe, yeah. but I do not believe. Oh, I don't believe at all. No. No. Like... It's so depressing. It's so depressing. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're... I mean, there is... There's no two ways about it. It is... It's... In, in a nutshell, everything that is a bummer about the way that these great filmmakers aren't making new things, they are going back and remaking their old things, that everything is just going to be in an endless cycle of the things you love, but 25 years older and a good deal chintzier than they were back then. And exactly like the other revival reboot piece of shit that you saw last week like even jennifer lawrence who i'm so happy to see her doing something Mm -hmm. like no hard feelings and like crushing it is like yeah sure i'll play katniss again well they're reviving the franchise i would rather chew glass like yeah you notice she doesn't say that about mystique though (laughs) (laughs) 
she has no interest in doing that she said, again. Bye-bye. <laughs> you know, and you know what? Jennifer Lawrence has earned uh earned some leeway from me, but I agree with you. And that like just it's so it was ex- so exciting to go back to No Hard Feelings one last time in this episode. It was so exciting to watch an actor get to do something that she's great at that you had forgotten that she's great at because she had sort of like drifted from that for a while and just get to take on a brand new thing at you that you, and surprise you a little bit. Even the moments in the movie that are a little crunchy. Yeah. Like the first 15, 20 minutes of the movie, it is a little crunchy because sure. it's like her saying things like, I really just can't lose my house. And yeah. it's like, Okay, yeah, we get yeah, it. we get yeah. it. You're, you're, it's, but Agreed. like Agreed. when the movie gets going, it's it's great. It's a um, testament to how far you can get on two really charismatic lead performances too. Like it's just right. it's really really shockingly good chemistry from a twenty one year old actor and a Oscar winning movie star. Like it's kind of incredible how well they get on together. It's it's. Good job. Listen, the Oscars and the Jimmy Awards coming together to entertain <laughs> at long us all. last. At long last. At long last. <laughs> uh, Breakfast on Pluto is also a National Board of Review citation that year, where it gets recognized. Recently mentioned in our Everything is Illuminated episode. Yeah, it's one of the uh, special recognition for excellence in filmmaking, which again is what their Burns. top 10, <laughs> right? Monty Burns. Uh, uh, Achievement and Excellence Award, uh, but it's also what their top ten indie films list was before it was called that. And yeah, we went through this when we did our Everything Is Illuminated episode, so we don't really need to go through it quite as much yet again. Um, I-, I wanted to talk about this movie as a player of TIFF because I looked up because I was like, I bet this was a TIFF gala. It's not. It's from the master section, which rests in peace, they should bring that back. Um, because now it just feels like, you know, you have these movies that are just in these kind of nomad land of where they're going to throw them around rather than like, you put a movie in a section called masters and it's like, this is why you kind of show up to some of these movies. I will admit with TIFF before you continue. Um, I usually don't, differentiate like at some point i'm just sort of like right I mean, everything like, goes a, into the tiff a... bucket and i can see everything wherever it plays but like i appreciate that you have more of an institutional memory of this kind of thing because i do feel like it is especially looking back it's interesting to see how these films and these filmmakers were uh anticipated by the tiff programmers right right and like i think it also like shows how breakfast on pluto would have been somewhat positioned as well as it you know arrived to the world but like it's you know put in a section alongside brokeback mountain uh michelle hanukkah's uh cachet the palm winner l'enfant from the dardens hate that movie Um, oh do you i've never seen it what's so bad about it i just I am either completely not on board or fully on board with the Dardens, and there is uh-huh. no middle ground. This sure. was a movie I was not on board with because it's just, to me, so contrived mm-hmm. of just like what the morality play is that you're watching. Sure. And it's, I just, I wasn't on board for it. Sure. 
But like also people like Lars von Trier, Soderbergh, the Scorsese Bob Dylan doc. I think even though as a you know a festival ticket buyer, you're just showing up to the movie. But like when you're positioning a movie and getting people to watch it, like you I know, agree, yeah, I do think it's significant. Yeah, well, and it's interesting to look at the sort of wide range of ultimate outcomes for those movies, right? Where like Brokeback Mountain is a major Oscar player and a huge big deal throughout the rest of the year. Cachet is the big foreign language critical darling throughout much of the rest of the year. Uh, And then you get like the conversation around Lars von Trier's Manderley is a lot of a lot more complicated and a lot more (laughs) right um and steven soderbergh's bubble is an interesting curiosity and people are like what is soderbergh doing in this phase of his career right now Um, terry gilliam's tideland is seen as an abomination right i don't think i've ever seen tideland but this was definitely during the time period where like can Terry Gilliam ever actually get a movie made? Because everything just seemed to be these like long periods of. Um, although, when was Brothers Grimm around this? Maybe a monster. Well, Who knows? Um, yeah, he's a monster. Uh, but that stuff didn't start coming out until much, much later. Um, Brothers Grimm would have been around this time, though, right? Right, because Brothers Grimm was before Brokeback Mountain. Because I remember that movie being like, seeing that movie and being like, Maybe Heath Ledger's got more going on than I thought, because Heath Ledger really was like 10 Things I Hate About You and Knight's Tale, kind of like a brash teen heartthrob kind of a guy. And then I remember seeing Brothers Grimm and I'm like, oh, he's weirder than I gave him credit for as an actor. He's mm-hmm. much more comfortable going to these weird places. And then right after that was Brokeback Mountain. And then it's like, oh, no, he's like, he's incredible. Brothers Grimm, not successful on movie terms but still very watchable partly because of those stars but yeah yeah i liked it I monica enjoyed... bellucci plays a villain like when are you not plays a vampire like a right a i'm pretty sure right or something she's certainly costumed like a vampire <laughs> okay <laughs> very good all right anything else we want to say about breakfast on pluto where we're ultimately we didn't we Where didn't you... really talk about Killian Murphy's performance. Yes, okay, from let's do that. How we kind of designated it as he—it's compelling to watch. We him, can talk about that in the context of what we ultimately thought of the movie because I think both of them sort of go hand in hand. I mean, I definitely feel like it is a very affected performance. It feels like he's putting on a voice. It, while I don't, I wouldn't lump it into the category of like. Jared Leto in Dallas Buyers Club where it feels like self-conscious in a way of like look at how good I'm doing look at this creative Mm -hmm. you know it's I do it's a performance that though I feel like he's adding affectations to it it does it's interesting that you say it in that way though I did not to interrupt you but I think it if this is interesting context and I want to hear what you think of this is in a lot of his interviews you know how sort of actors in the interviews they have their sort of thing that they say in all of them which is as somebody I don't know what hundred people in a room you're talking about as as somebody who um would come home for the holidays from New York and like hear myself telling the same exact spiel to every single relative and want to absolutely <laughs> kill myself because I sound so boring saying the exact same verbiage. I get it. Um, but he talked about when doing press for Breakfast on Pluto that he played Kitten and distinguished between 
distinguished between playing her as feminine as opposed to effeminate. And that uh, he had described the difference as that effeminate is more of an affectation and feminine is more of a lived-in identity. And I thought that was interesting because I think I'm more on board with your take on it which is that it is it does still come across come off as affectation but it does feel like there's maybe some well-meaning intention behind totally it, oh i absolutely you know? think like so. it's you know while we've you know gained awareness about like who's telling what stories etc it this i i think is less embarrassing than but i also feel like and i'm going to bring up a name of somebody who you hate I also feel like somebody like Eddie Redmayne had very good intentions going into playing his character in The Danish Girl. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think, I don't ascribe... Like, it's the same, like, overwrought performance that he gives in everything else? I mean, maybe, I don't, But I don't think Eddie Redmayne goes into The Danish Girl with an intent to sort of trample on that character for his own ends. I I think Eddie Redmayne goes into that movie with the same intention that I think Killian Murphy goes into uh, playing kitten in breakfast on Pluto. And there are moments where the latter reminds me of the former a little bit, but I think ultimately Murphy is able to bring out more of a lived in character while at the same time, recognizing the fact that if we are ultimately going to, take Kitten as a trans character, that there are nuances in lived experience that could be much more effectively and empathetically played by a trans performer. Like we can just, I mean, I don't, I don't think you disagree with that. I think that's something we, we are both on the same page about while at the same time, recognizing the fact that like, that's not the movie we got. So let's talk about the movie we got. Well, and like, while I feel like we're talking about the movie that maybe has gotten Killian Murphy the most recognition for uh, him as a performer, yeah. I wouldn't put this near anywhere near the best performances he's given. No, I, I I agree. I think it's 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 which is like true of most performers, especially when you're talking about this type of material. Sure, but. sure. Um, <laughs> There are moments I I rented I don't know where you rented this to watch it. I rented it on Amazon. The sort of splash image of it when you go to rent it on Amazon uh of kitten sort of done up with, you know, makeup and a wig and whatever looks so much like Taylor Swift. It kind of took me aback for a second. <laughs> and I wouldn't have ex- breakfast on Pluto Taylor's version. <laughs> um but I think there's there are moments when it's like you're you're putting on the voice in a way that sometimes feels like this would make sense when Patrick is trying out like sort of like emerging like is a more of an emerging flower right mm-hmm. in uh in kitten's life and then later in the movie i think by the end of the movie there are a couple really, really lovely scenes, especially the one where Kitten is talking to young Patrick, his mother's uh, younger child, that she seems much more 
comfortable in her own skin and in her Mm -hmm. own identity. And like that to me shows a conscious evolution over the course of the movie. I still feel like it lingers far too long in the movie where Kitten is coming across as overwrought in her presentation as herself, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It does. I think that maybe works better if the movie's better. Yeah. Yes. Um, Yeah. I think that's true. And I mean, I think some of what you're talking about too, you know, the like formative stages of identity. Yeah. Killian Murphy is also uh, not de-aging, but, you know, playing Playing a teenager as a full grown adult. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so like, that's always a little, you know, awkward and crunchy. But I also want to say that um, without making a value judgment on the righteousness or the necessity of anything that the uh, IRA embarked upon in their political struggles, um, how horrible, how horrible and horrifying to experience uh, a moment of explosive violence. Just as you're you're about to maybe kiss Dominic Cooper on a dance floor, like that's, that's that feels especially crushing in that moment. I like that scene. I like that scene in general. I thought that was very good. The shattering disco ball was a little much. Oh, I but... meant like the lead up to it, like the the oh, right. kitten and yes, Dominic yes. Cooper at the bar, and sort of like there are moments like that. There, I thought the same thing when. Kitten and the glam rock guy are sort of dancing outside mm-hmm. the the van, and all his band members are sort of gawking at them from the hotel above. And there are there are scenes and moments of physical intimacy that feel honest mm-hmm. in a way that I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. So there we go. Should we move on to the IMDb game? Yeah, I did. W- I want to mention one other uh, note that I wrote down, which is there's a moment when Kitten is performing on stage with the glam rock guy where she's dressed up as, uh, in her words, a squaw. Like the glam rock guy is dressed up as a cowboy <laughs> and she's, or sort of like this like medicine hat type, like, you know, drifter or whatever. All the imagery yeah. in these glam things are very like patchworky and a lot of it, but like, uh, Kittens dressed up as a squat, and I just wrote down Sashin Little Feather Ass because, like, that at some point was just like probably around that same time period, right? Like the seventy three. Uh, oh, so like that was her drag inspiration then? Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. Um, uh, no, probably not literally, but uh, yes, that's what I was thinking. Is a, a night of a thousand Sashin Little Feathers, and uh, and Kitten Brady uh, took first place. <laughs> okay. All right. Should I mention uh, how we play the IMDb game? Yes, you should. All righty. Uh, we end our episodes every week with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. And if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. That's the IMDb game. Are you giving or guessing first today, sir? I'll guess first. All right. So uh, as we are talking about this uh, for Killian Murphy in 
the release of Oppenheimer, I went into the shockingly massive uh, name. I was going to say, how could you pick a movie? How could you pick one name out of the Oppenheimer cast? Well, I was like, you know, we're at a stage where we're having to basically duplicate names that we've done before. I said, surely someone in Oppenheimer we have not done that has name recognition. And this is true, though. If you just go through that cast list for that movie, it's just like the names don't stop of just people (laughs) that are in this movie that you didn't know are in the movie. They're probably all in one scene. Sure. By the time the movie opens, the movie will be in general release and they will still be, uh, you know, adding names to this list of people Uh who are in it. You know, like they're probably still filming more people to be like, who can we get to just add to this movie? Um, Olivia Thirlby's in this movie. Oh, my God. Uh, literally like she just showed up in the trailer for something else that i watched a trailer for yesterday what was it shit hold on a second i want to mention this um fuck what is it um it's uh, we're literally i was like wait a second olivia thirlby's having a moment again this is great um uh sorry this is annoying um i don't know i'll come back later I don't know what it is. Go All right. Ahead. Cool. Sorry. Uh, I did not choose Olivia Thurlby for you. I chose Matthew Modine. Matthew Modine? That's amazing. All right. I love that. Okay. Um. All right. Matthew Modine. I imagine that Full Metal Jacket is one of them. Full Metal Jacket, correct. Okay. Um... No television. There's no television. Not even like an HBO movie? No. So no and the band played on. Okay. Um, Matthew Modine. Is he in Good Morning Vietnam? Uh, let me... It's not there. It's not that, so so it won't count as an incorrect answer if he is not in the movie. You play by that rule, and I don't play by that rule. I find that very interesting. I so, think it's only fair. No, because it's a wrong. A wrong guess is a wrong guess, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but you could be like that. I, I feel like it's a route to cheating. Okay. <laughs> to like getting your years. You know, oh, I see. You could be like Matthew Modine. He's in Citizen Barbie. Kane. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Okay. Um. So no, I'm not counting that. But no, he is not. He's not in Good Morning, in, in Good Morning Vietnam. I feel or like Good there's a movie where I can imagine him in like glasses behind a desk in a military uniform. But anyway, um, you mean like Full Metal Jacket? No, he's in the field in Full Metal Jacket. Um, I'm sure he's at a desk at some point. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Um, all right. He's not at a desk, but he's at a barber chair, right? When they, they shave everyone's they head. Do. The, yeah. beginning the, the thing about Matthew Modine is he's so, like, middle of the road, like, you didn't get Kevin Klein, so we're going to give you Matthew Modine, like that kind of a thing. <laughs> no offense against uh, Mr. Modine. Um, or like you didn't Two get... of these movies, I would say, are along those lines. One of them yeah. is like, ah, yes, we will make a star of Matthew Modine. Right. 
There's also a lot of like 90s movies where I was like, was Matthew Modine the guy in this? Where it's like, is he the guy in Jennifer 8? Is he the guy in Unlawful Entry? <laughs> See, I told you I was I this is this is the retribution. I have finally come back to give you Yes. what I think is difficult. Yeah, yes, you have. Good for you. I hope you feel good about yourself. Um I do. shit. He really is. Okay, wait. Desperately seeking Susan. Um, he is... Hold on. He's the guy in that, right? He's not. Who's the guy in Desperately Seeking Susan? Aiden Quinn? I don't know. This is the problem That's with Matthew Modine. Point. God damn it. Um, See, he's not a twink, but like Matthew Modine or Aiden Quinn would be a great... Uh, game for I know Katie was here I know I know oh my god that's true Matthew Modine Kevin Kleiner Aiden Quinn would be incredible yes (laughs) um oh my god truly okay um shit all I'm picturing him is like in the various like HBO movies that he was in which like won't count um because he's also in Too Big to Fail um fuck I can give you I, maybe I'll um, okay. I'll give you years. Yeah, give me let 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 those incorrect guesses be incorrect guesses. Give me give me years. Nineteen ninety five, two thousand twelve, and two thousand seventeen. Jesus, two teens movies. One of these movies we have talked about on this episode. Nineteen ninety five is exactly the thing I'm talking about. Where it's like he could be. This is a pretty distinct nineteen ninety five in his filmography. Okay. Was it this like, is a notorious movie. Notorious bad? Maybe, like, Gen Z has never heard of this, but, like, our generation knows about this movie. Okay. 95. Like, you know about this movie, but I would fully believe it if you have never seen it. <laughs> so not an Oscar movie. No. Not a blockbuster. Definitely not. So a bomb. A bomb. Cutthroat Island. Cutthroat Island. Yeah. Sank Carol Co. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cutthroat Island. See? See the thing about Cutthroat Island is like, who's going to show up for your pirate adventure? Cutthroat movie? Island absolutely could have been Kevin Klein. You know what I mean? Like, this is the thing that I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Pirates of Penzance. Um, okay. I mean, I would show up for a pirate movie, and I did because I've seen Cutthroat Island with Gina <laughs> Davis, but like, I know. Matthew Modine is the romantic boy. I know. I'm saying, all right. 2012 and 2017. Is he is he like definitely supporting in both of those? Like Ah, uh, yes. Okay. 2012, I would be willing to bet he has two scenes in. Because <laughs> 2012 is the movie that we've talked about on this episode. Oh. That I... 2012 is The Dark Knight Rises. It is The Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, okay. Um 2017 is a movie that I would you possibly have not seen it, but I do think you know of this movie. I do believe it spawned a sequel, and this movie was compared to another significantly better movie that especially the gays flocked to um, and defended. Not defended, but like the gays were like, yes, that movie was a slay because of its lead actress. Because of its lead actress. So, like, because of its lead actress who is like, a name everybody knows, but in terms of being cast in movies, is not a list. BB Rexa. No. Uh, Nikki, this is Nikki like Minaj. the BB Rexa to Kate Hudson. 
the BB Rex to Kate Hudson is um Britain's Maybe that's Snow. not fair. Maybe she's not the Okay, uh, yes, this is why she's not the BB Rexa to Kate Hudson. She's like the If BB Rexa is the C tier and Lady Gaga is the A tier, who's the B tier? Ariana Grande. Mm, I think some people are going to want to kill you for that. Yeah, but come at we me. We can go with that. Come we at me. Go, we can go with that. Absolutely. Um okay. You have Kate Hudson, this actress, Britney Snow. Okay. Love Britney Snow. No, I think Britney Snow is great. Britney Snow rules. So your B tier of that is partly because she never really broke through with movies. So she's been very, very good in movies, and including the movie that we're comparing. Is acting very? We're, we're falling down so many rabbit holes to get you to this Matthew. Is, wait, movie. is acting this act this actress's only avenue? I'm sure that there's like you know uh, Spawn Con. Oh, but not like, such. but not like an album somewhere or like, no, yeah. no. But this is, this is someone who got famous through TV. And I think people always think of this as a TV actress, even though okay. she's been good in other movies. Like network, re- regular network TV or like CW? ABC a regular Channel network TV. TV show, but you almost got there. But like younger ABC family, ABC. Oh, no, 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 no. CW. 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 Yeah, so a CW star. Um but like Alexis Bledel is not the B version of Kate Hudson. Uh, You're getting closer. Lauren Graham? No. Oh, but another sister of the traveling pants, Blake Lively. Yes. Okay. Uh so it's a Blake Lively. Oh, so Blake oh, Lively oh, oh, was oh, in oh, a oh, movie. Oh, 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 oh. This is one of two movies. Both of which were latched on Matthew to... Modine is not in the movie that Blake Lively is in, but the movie that Matthew Modine is in was compared negatively to the movie that Blake Lively was in. Are we talking about the shark movie or the Age of Adelaide? We're talking about the shark movie. The shark you got movie. it. Okay. <laughs> so Matthew Modine is in a shark movie that's not as good as The Shallows. A shark movie that does have a pop girly in it. <laughs> <laughs> in 2017... Was it the Meg? I would say, and this, what's weird about this pop girly is, as a pop girly considered C tier, but I think definitely B plus quality. Oh. Um, but was getting famous again for, like Blake Lively, being on a TV show around this time. <laughs> so many clues. Okay. C tier pop show girly that was like who Chris popular. Likes. What was Jesse Ware in on television? Not Jesse Ware. No, 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 no. This is like This is Pop Girly who's like contemporaries at the time of their career would have been Britney, Christina, Vitamin. Mandy C. Moore. Mandy Moore. Alright, Mandy Moore, Matthew Modine, Sharks. I saw this movie. It's the title that I can't remember. Terrible shark movie. Hated I kind movie. of liked it. I thought it was good. It's the one with they're in the cage, right? They're in the cage and yes. it's 30 meters below? How many meters? 47 meters down. 47 meters down. <laughs> I'm bad at measurements. So yeah. Who the fuck is Matthew Modine in 47 meters down? Is he, he the cage? Is, he is, is he the shark? Captain Taylor. God damn it. That's 
absurd. Absolutely Matthew absurd. Matthew Modine's known for Full Metal Jacket, Cutthroat Island, The Dark Knight Rises, and 47 Meters I'll Down. I'll say this. I saw 47 Meters Down in theaters, and I only saw The Shallows on uh, on demand. So say say that. The, shallow, the Shallows is not as good as gay people made it out to be, but The Shallows is good. Well, gay people made The Shallows out to be like Cries and Whispers. So no, it wasn't quite as good. <laughs> but um, it's still good. It was a good fun time at the movies. Um, all right. For you, Christopher. Hi. I, uh, in your honor, I revisited Neil Jordan's Greta. Um, good time at the movies. Great time at the movies personified. Um, not Isabelle Huppert, but her on-screen counterpart and object <laughs> of obsession, who we somehow have never done, uh, Miss Chloe Grace Moretz. Okay. This I actually think is going to be difficult because there are actually a lot. She got cast in a ton of shit. She still does. Um, Kick-Ass. Yes. Boo. Yes. Um, 500 Days of Summer. No. Not Mm. 500 Days of Summer. Um, Where she plays the role of shut up. Like, that's genuinely (laughs) her character in in 500 Days of Summer. (laughs) I'm tempted to say the miseducation of Cameron Post because she's title character. Um, Plus, she does so well singing "Everything Is Everything" in uh, in that movie. Because the miseducation. God, I'm I'm leaving this call right now. I'm ending this podcast. (laughs) I am going to. I'm going to set you on fire when I see you for that joke. I am going to immolate you Uh in the streets of Toronto. you're one for one. Uh, okay. Uh, or no, you're one. You're one for two. You're you're one strike. Yeah, I'm gonna keep that one in my back pocket. Um, she's been in like movies that have made money. Is the thing people are mean to her. Uh, Clouds of Sales Maria. I'll just say that. No, strike two. So your okay. years are going to be 2010, 2013, 2014. Okay, so not Miseducation of Cameron Post. Right. Um. Oh, so these are all. They'll be post five hundred days of summer. Mm-hmm. Is one of them Kick Ass Two? No, not Kick Ass Two. Okay. Um, I'll say this: two of them are remakes. Prom Night was she in Prom Night? Nope. No, Britney Snow is in Prom Night. Yes. Um, what else was remade around that time? She definitely at least one of those is horror. Um, I will say yes, correct. You are correct in your assumption. Horror remakes from that time. It's not like My Bloody Valentine. It's not Friday the 13th. It's not Nightmare on Elm Street. Get out of the franchises. Yeah, okay. Um... Those are just the ones I could recall off the bat. Sure. Um, well, and also, this was the era where all of those were getting remade. Right. And they were all bad. Um, Neither one of these two remakes is seen as as good as the original, although one of them, I think, got better rece- better reception than others. Uh-huh. Probably but, at yeah. least one of them is, like, stupid fun. Well, yeah, but that's... I think the one that's stupid fun is the less reviewed of the two of them. 
Oh, interesting. The one that was well reviewed, um, I've actually never seen. I've only ever seen the original. Um, but there's sli- uh, one of uh, so both uh, there's two horror remakes on there. Yeah, they're both, both of the remakes horror. They're both okay, horror. Yeah. are they slashers or are they no? Okay, this this helps. Um, obviously not Poltergeist. No, not not franchises. Neither but one of these like, originals ever got sequels. Carrie, 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 correct. She is the titular Carrie. Which I'm presuming is the one that you think is less is not fun, or you think that's fun. I think it's fun. I don't think people liked that Carrie, but I think it's dumb fun. Um, if you surrender all your reverence for the original, right? Is she also a title character in the other one? No. Well, no. So she's a lead. Yeah. But not a title character, but you had pause about that. Well, okay. one of the words in the title... Ref- Presumes her. Ref- yes, refers to her. So it's like, Rosemary's baby, the titular character is the baby, not sure. Rosemary. Um, ooh, I know this is right there. It's even more sort of uh, reflexively pronounable uh-huh so like a her or she in the title right but but uh if one were in the first person my or i no me yes <laughs> remember me um not remember me that's emily Durevin. it's not drag me to hell nope that's allison loman it's me remake me remake of me a scared. foreign language film. Oh, she's in one of these. It's a very well liked foreign language film, I will say. Although maybe this is not I don't know if you like this original very as much as other people do, probably. Is my guess because I don't think I ever really heard you talk about it. It's a is it a remake of an Asian horror film? I will say the male lead in this was Oscar nominated within the last two years. Ah, mm, I don't know if that'll help me. Got got uh, their first Oscar nomination in twenty twenty one or for a twenty twenty one movie. Okay, so someone young from 2021, probably, presumably. Um, Chloe Moretz has worked so much, though, that I don't know if yeah. that'll help me. The director of this movie has directed a lot, including one particular uh, franchise that did very well at the box office, even though... And with good movies, but even though I find that those movies kind of fade out of my memory after I've watched them. Huh. But as a good director, I like this guy as a director. Why can't I get there? Okay. Um, Two years ago, man, that was nominated for an Oscar, presumably in the age range of Chloe Moretz. Yes. Um, Correct. 
I'm just drawing a blank. I made um, more coffee. Okay. Uh, younger, first time nominee, one of four acting nominees for that movie. From two years ago, that was... Um, shit. So this would have been the Coda year. Oh, it's... um. Oh, it's Let Me In. It's Let Me In. Which is really good. Okay, like, so I you know really people like it. Okay. Were, okay. People were against that movie. Okay. I also read the book of that and like... Are you know, a fan of the original? S- yes. Okay, okay. Yes. I, I didn't realize they're both that. very good. Okay. I think they're just doing yeah. different things. To connect and the dots I, for the listeners, uh, Cody Smith-McPhee is the male lead in Let Me In. Yes. Cody Smith-McPhee. Uh, directed by Matt Reeves, right? Matt Reeves, who did the Planet of the Apes uh, movies and also yes. the Batman. Yes. Um, so you're still missing one, Giacchino by the way. The Giacchino score in that movie is fucking tremendous. Yeah, it's very good Giacchino score. With, like, uh, a, a pretty big assist from uh, the Nirvana catalog, but yes. Um, all right, you're, miss- you're missing one movie still, the okay. 2014 movie, which is... It's wild that Let Me In is on there, considering that bombed. And the 2014 movie is not, to the best of my knowledge, based on a YA novel even though it seems like it seems like it. Mm. So it's like youth and strife. Yeah, but also like, what are the things like those YA m- books that get turned into movies? Someone's dying. Uh-huh. So is she the one that's dying? Yes. The problem with her and guessing these is that she could be in zero of those movies or she could be in 14 of them. Okay, weirdly, it has the same weird, like, interesting pronoun uh, uh, construct that I was... No, but in this case... uh, You? No. I? Yes. I died. I died. (laughs) I mean, kind of, yes. When I die. It's more of a liminal thing. If I die. You are two-thirds of the way there, my friend. If I... It's a liminal. There's a question. Did I die? No, you've you've got the first two words. Stay with those first two words. If I... Maybe died. (laughs) If I should... If I... When you die, people will be like, like, did she die? (laughs) That could have been the title. Um, (laughs) She's dead? When one dies, they, uh, they don't, they don't, God, I don't want to give it away. If I go to heaven? Okay. The first, the, the third word of that phrase is what? Go the opposite. If of that. I go, no, the opposite of that. If I leave, no, the opposite of go. Stay. Oh, if I stay, yeah. Do you remember that movie at all? As a title, yes. Yes, okay. I've maybe seen this movie. I've not seen this movie. I love that we had to essentially play Hangman to get that title <laughs> for you. That was fun. That was a good that is time. the. Good, 
it almost feels like an other two joke about <laughs> what a Chloe Moretz movie would be. Yes. Well, a lot of the thing about Chloe Moretz movies is that a lot of them do feel like that. So yeah. Um, I, yeah. I feel like I'm dunking on CGM. I've stood up for Chloe Grace Moretz. I before. like her in certain roles and I don't like her in certain roles. She really, I can run hot and cold. The premise of If I Stay, by the way, is that Chloe Grace Moretz is in a car accident and she's in a coma and she has an out-of-body experience where she has to make the decision of whether she uh, lives or not. So. That seems insanely YA. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's kind of crazy that it's not based on a YA novel. If it was based on a YA novel, she would also have a disorder that, like, she can't experience the touch of grass or else she'll die. You know what I mean? It's like she can't... uh, uh, you know, oxygen particles harm her, so she has to be like kept in a, you know, Ziploc bag or something like that. Like that's that's the that's the genre I'm thinking of. All right, right. Uh, I think that's the longest IMTB game we've Probably had so. in quite some time uh, yeah. because I can't believe we're hitting the two hour mark on this movie. We really didn't um, seem like we were going to when we got to the beginning of it. Right, IMDb right, game. right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then we had forty five minutes of IMTB. <laughs> Uh, and that's our episode. If you want more of this had Oscar buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at this had You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz and on Instagram at this had Oscar buzz. Joe, we are knocking on the door of episode 250. Oh my God. We're so close. We're so close. We're to so it. close. It's going to be a big episode. We're doing a movie that, uh, we love talking about, and we will uh, hopefully have some exciting news to talk about in that episode. Yeah. But for now, Joe, where can our listeners find more of you? Instagram, not Instagram. I keep <laughs> screwing up by saying that. Not Instagram. Don't find my Instagram. There's nothing for you there. Um, uh, Twitter and Letterboxd at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R E I D. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. Uh, also, I guess, on Blue Ski. Uh, I refuse to call it Blue Sky <laughs> if it is indeed called Blue Sky. It is called and Blue Sky. I did look it up. It is called Blue Sky. But yes. It is? Yes. It, was it a rumor that it was It was Blue a joke. Ski? It was a joke that it was Blue yeah, Ski. It's yeah, it's Blue Ski. I don't care. Okay. Blue Sky makes it sound like I'm in doing bad animation it does movies. the way that it's um, spelled as one word d- definitely connotes uh, blueski like brewski but uh no it is apparently not and it's blueski anyway <laughs> um we would like to thank kyle cummings for his fantastic artwork and david gonzalez and kevin Mewius for their technical guidance please remember to rate like and review us on spotify apple Podcasts, google play stitcher wherever else you get your podcasts five star review in particular a five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So if we maybe die away, leave stuff, uh, and die, uh, <laughs> if I go, um, rhymes die, with, at least you can go. Sounds and like leave a nice review. That's all for this week. We hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Bye. Well, you can twist and shout. Let it all hang.